This episode is brought to you by WeatherGuard Lightning Tech. At WeatherGuard, we make lightning protection easy. If your wind turbines are due for maintenance or repairs, install our Strike Tape Retrofit LPS upgrade at the same time. A Strike Tape installation is the quick, easy solution that provides a dramatic, long-lasting boost to the factory lightning protection system. Forward-thinking windsight owners install Strike Tape today to increase uptime tomorrow. Learn more in the show notes of today's podcast. Welcome back. I'm Dan Blewett. I'm Alan Hall. And I'm Rosemary Barnes. And this is the Uptime Podcast, bringing you the latest in wind energy tech, news, and policy. Welcome back to the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Dan Blewett. On today's episode, uh, big global sort of uh, news cycle. We're going to talk about GE overtaking Vestas here in the U.S. Um, an interesting uh, cracked foundation issue um, over in Canada that we'll talk about. Might have some really expensive repairs uh, due for that wind farm. Uh, we'll talk about New York State and their contentious relationship now with, with gas power plants. Uh, we'll talk about Scotland lending some aid to Vietnam, France, and their next presidential contender and how hostile uh, she is towards uh, wind energy. We'll talk about some funding coming out of the UK government, uh, Turkey's wind power record. And lastly, we'll talk a little bit about floating LIDARs and how they assess wind farm sites. So before we get going, I just want to remind you, number one, definitely subscribe to Rosemary's YouTube channel, which you'll find in the show notes of this podcast. She's doing live streams and uh, you know continues to pump out great content, so definitely subscribe and check out some of her offerings. Also, you'll find Uptime Tech News in the show notes uh, wherever you listen or watch, and that's our weekly email update, just letting you know about the new podcast and some other great news around the web. So sign up for that today and get that uh, update every week, every Thursday morning. So we're going to jump right into it. So first thing, um, GE is now uh, has rested that top spot over Vestas, accounting for 34% of new uh, installations in the first nine months of 2021 versus 30% for Vestas. And of course, that is 2.44 gigawatts of turbines uh, for GE versus 2.2 gigawatts for Vestas. And then interestingly enough, and Nordex really seems to fly under the radar, but Nordex was third, and they're, of course, a German manufacturer uh, with a 20% share of this market, with Siemens Gamesa coming up behind in 16%. Um, but, you know, everyone talks about GE, Vestas, Siemens Gamesa, but Nordex has had some a pretty strong year. Um, so, Alan, I'll start with you. Uh, does this surprise you? I mean, this is, you know, GE's home turf, after all. Yeah, it it's a little surprising because GE ha, he has recently struggled, but they've lately have been putting things together and have been more successful. I I know GE's concerned about the rising cost of supplies and raw materials, which are going to throw a wrench into this a little bit. Uh, but you know, GE's trying to mark their territory in a sense, and uh, it's just lower cost to, to build a factory in the United States if it's if you've got the infrastructure already there, where Siemens Gamesa kind of has to start start from scratch, like they're doing down in Virginia. The the odd one here, I think, is really Nordex because on the offshore side, Nordex is not competing or going out for bids on offshore, so it's just really three players: Siemens Gamesa, Vestas, and and GE. And I assume there's going to be a Chinese. Uh, offering somewhere in there at some point. But it is really odd that Nordex is doing so well onshore, but is really not looking for offshore, where the U.S. is going to put 30 gigawatts offshore in the next couple of years. It seems like a marketplace that everybody would need to be in. So there, there must be some dispute about where the profit centers lie. Everybody's taking their own position. And Rosemary, you, you were a lot closer to it because you, you work for one of the blade manufacturers. How did that play out when you're actually working inside one of the manufacturers? Did you see that sort of dichotomy of manufacturer versus manufacturer? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, obviously, so the company I was working at got bought by GE um, halfway through my time there. So, yeah, I, I feel... I mean, we, we were we were GE, but um, 
they also continue to make blades for the other manufacturers. So, yeah, I mean, you're definitely keeping an eye on on what's happening. And also it's really important for planning out where you're going to have factories located. So if they're winning a lot of work in the US, um, which I'm sure was a strategic goal. I mean, it's also, you know, like it's part of your national pride, right, that you you want to have uh, American American companies supplying the turbines. And I know it, it is important to GE that they, um, you know, are a strong player in that market. But I think it's interesting, like, which companies are choosing – whether to focus on offshore or onshore. And I know that there's a lot of perceived risk with making a big, bold play for offshore. Like when GE wanted to, um, you know, they, they really went all in on the, the Halliade X. Um, and, and at that time, LM, you know, announced their largest ever blade, the 108 metre blade. And I know people said, like, we would never have done that if it wasn't for that huge company with the, um, you know, the money behind them because um, LM, before they were bought by GE, could have been ruined by by that, the investment that's required, you know, needed all new factories and the, it's a big tech um, technology leap. So there is a, a risk as much as you can do tons of testing and be pretty sure you're never – a hundred percent sure before you do something so different, you've got some warranty exposure that a small company is going to feel scared of. So I think that I think that that's what's driving which companies are going for offshore versus onshore. The onshore is just a lot less risky, a lot more business as usual. Yeah, and that seems like a good. I mean, a good business for those who want to stay in it, right? Like I know. You know, it's not perhaps as sexy of a market to be doing onshore wind farms, but if it's profitable and it's steady and it's consistent, that's good business, right? It's great business if you can get it, right? <laughs> I think it's just the question of, you know, where it's 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 measure of risk. This whole, the whole thing is, especially in the United States, and we just had an election uh, in the last twenty four forty eight hours, and so it looks even more turbulent than it than it was again. And I think that's the risk, right? And Siemens Cabeza on one of their podcasts talked about that risk, saying, we went through this before not long ago, and we kind of got burned, and we want to be really careful going forward because we can't devote too much finance and cash inflow to something that doesn't happen. Uh, so being nimble is key here. And I think Siemens Cabeza is probably playing this the correct way, which are taking a $200 million step, not a billion dollar step into that marketplace, they're going to go go slow. GE will too, by the way. GE is also doesn't is not flush with cash at the moment. And if you look at their stock price, you, you can see why they're getting better, but you're still going to not going to take super big risk right now. And, and onshore is a lot less risky. And maybe Nordic's got the right play. Like, hey, we're just going to wait this out and see how it plays. It's, it's an interesting tact. Yeah, and of course, the the other wild card here in the U.S. is the U.S. production tax credit, which was extended at the end of 2020. So it'll run through through December 31st, 2021. So projects need to get kicked off uh, on construction before that date. And there's a lot of uncertainty whether that'll get renewed or not. So I know companies like GE are trying to figure out, you know, is this going to still be around? Because um, that's obviously going to affect whether some of these operators want to place, you know, big orders. So, I mean... Alan, do you see that being extended again? Or, you know, I know this is a little bit of a, a partisan issue here in the U.S. It is. I do think it will get extended. There's a, a minor push in some parts of the country not to do it. But I think some of your more um, conservative states, red states, as we call them in the United States, are full of wind, right? The Midwest is full of wind. Texas is being number one in wind. Uh, so I don't see a lot of pushback on on extending the tax credit. I think that will happen because everybody sort of agrees on that at the moment. All right. So let's let's segue. This is kind of um, in the same vein, different countries. So over in France, um, one of the uh, presidential hopefuls, uh, Marine Le Pen, is very anti-wind, said she would, would end all subsidies for renewable energy and take down current wind turbines if she was elected next year. That seems uh, pretty intense. Rosemary, why, like, does she have a huge Luddite base over in France? Like, why, I know they're big on nuclear power there, but why such an extreme aversion and downright uh, anger toward wind, it seems? Well, I mean, I'm not, 
I'm not totally sure. I I have spent a fair bit of time in um, France, you know, on, on holidays when I was living in Denmark and especially in the French countryside because I, I ride bikes and there isn't, you know, many places in the world better for, better for that than the French countryside. And I think that a lot of it is just because they they love their countryside and they like it the way that it is without wind turbines. I think that that's kind of what it is at, at heart and it's similar to the kind of opposition we see in Australia as well and probably the US who just would rather look at a natural environment or farmland rather than wind turbines, which, you know, I, I can understand. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we do need to make electricity somehow and I don't know any forms of electricity generation that are really nice to look at compared to, you know, just pristine nature. I'd be super surprised yeah. if anyone's tearing down a wind turbine. I mean, that's just like shocking for business, right? Like how could you feel confident investing in any kind of business in a country that, you know, like tore down some company's private asset? That that seems highly implausible to me and I am – Without being very familiar with French politics, I'm going to assume that that's, you know, kind of a uh, thingy that you say in an, electric, an election campaign that isn't necessarily going to happen. Yeah. But I think it's also underpinned by the fact that they have so much nuclear. Um, they don't they don't have as big a need to um, install wind and solar as other countries if they want to move to towards um, a fully clean electricity grid, you know, in the same way that Germany, who's committed to no nuclear and decarbonising at once, they, they could not say the same thing about wind because they would just be left with no, no electricity. Well, and so here's a quote from her. Wind and solar, these energies are not renewable. They are intermittent. So... I mean, it seems like she doesn't seem to understand the nature of what renewable means. <laughs> yeah, it's, she's working with a different definition of that word than than I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it just seems like, um, again, like that whole, I've got strong opinions that are relatively poorly informed. Here they are uh, trying to appease someone who maybe, I don't know, maybe she has a big alliance with, like you said, uh, nuclear power works pretty well, well for them, but I don't know. It just seems so out there that I can't imagine who she's, um, you know, on her, on her soapbox too. Alan, I mean, what's your, what's your take on this? Who is she speaking to? Why does she need to use such strong language about this, about dismantling current projects? I mean, who is that getting the big cheers from the back from? Well, there is a certain percentage of the population, uh, and it's not minor in France, that uh, doesn't really care for the government and what it's done over the last 10, 20 years. And you're seeing some of that pushback in the vaccine mandates that are going on. You're seeing some of that pushback in, in some of the policies that have been placed on the on – the, on the, like uh, what was the taxis at one point? Uh, where just the, the taxation and the fees and the costs are, are rising – and there's a huge pushback. And so they, I would say there's a certain part of the community, and you can point to renewables, where do we really need this thing? Because we're, we're mostly a nuclear country, and they are. And, and so I think it just comes down to are we placating the European Union or are we actually trying to take care of the citizens in the country? That doesn't play well in a lot of different uh, countries in Europe at the moment. So I don't see France being much different. I think what's happening is there with the with COVID and the stress that's being placed on the, on the economy in France, they don't need extra expenditures. They don't need to be subsidizing certain things. And I'm starting to think that you know they're using renewables as uh, something to you know to cudgel. That, that's what it looks like. And then um, let's transition to the U.S. So big news from New York. Uh, the state, not the country, although there's enough people in New York to essentially be its own country at times. Um, <laughs> but they've essentially, they're spelling the end for some gas power plants uh, in New York. Um, Alan, why don't mm -hmm. you take us through this this announcement and this decision? Because I know you've got some, you, you did a pretty deep dive on this one. Yeah, and I, I went to the New York State uh, website. It talks about power generation. and And New York is, is sort of an odd state in the United States. It's one, it's way up north where it's cold, right? It, it borders on Canada. Uh, its population base is mostly centered towards New York City. Uh, and what New York City decides is what the rest of the state has to live with. And so if you live 
in kind of where we are. And up towards Albany, New York, you don't get to decide a lot of things if you, when it comes down to it. So it's kind of like the Buffalo, New York City contingent drives the remainder of the state. And what's happened is that they decided to eliminate uh, all petroleum-based energy production, electricity production, by 2040. Like, okay, that's a great goal, right? But they don't have any way to really get there. And in the meantime, what they're doing is they're they're shutting down natural gas generation, which is providing the vast majority of their energy production today, more than half. Uh, And so you got sort of two different things happening simultaneously or like two interests that are really pushing this. One, the politicians are saying that, hey, we can go renewable. Hey, hey, New York City residents, we're going renewable. Awesome. And then you got the environmental groups that are supporting that. In the meanwhile, if you start looking at the math of this, I don't know how they're going to do it. I, I really don't. They're shutting down a nuclear power plant called Indian Point, which is just outside New York City on the Hudson River, and 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 these two gas plants we're talking about are essentially feeding New York City. The ones in Newburgh, which is not very far out New York City, and one is kind of on Long Island. I, I, where are they going to get power? And, and the, if, if I'm a citizen of New York of the New York State, forget about the city for a minute, their, their power electricity rates are like forty percent above or fifty percent above the U.S. average. So they're paying a premium already for electricity. I, if you're start, starting to take electricity generation off the grid, that's reliable, that it's continuous, right? Then you're left with less reliable, probably more expensive power generation i i don't see if you live in new york state how that's a good mix i i and i think it's being sold very positively in the press but at some point the engineering catches up with the press and and rosemary you know at some point don't you think that the lack of electricity and and a brownout situation is not going to be great for new york state Uh, (laughs) compared to its neighbors yeah yeah i mean Definitely. Um, and uh, I think that you've all, always got to have the next thing coming online before you will come online before you get rid of the thing before. And I, I do think it's interesting the way different countries are thinking about gas because it does get very political because it is a fossil fuel. Yeah. Um, and right. I definitely think that we need to be using less of it and, you know, aggressively um, move towards using less gas. But I probably personally wouldn't favour a moratorium on any new um, gas or even I think some of these projects are lifetime extension ones, right? So I just think yes. that you focus on the amount of emissions in your grid and then, you know, let the um, how you do that follow because if you do get rid of all of your your gas, then you might end up using more polluting sources more. Um, gas has the right. real advantage of being quite quite flexible. So it can really complement renewables. And then as you get the renewable system, the, you know, renewable electricity generation, your wind and your solar, um, as you get more storage, you're going to need to use less and less and less gas. So your emissions intensity of your grid will, will decrease, but the gas turbines are still there. You're just using them less. So, um, I, I think that People do need to be careful um, about kind of like blanket bans on things that might prevent the most efficient system and the most environmentally friendly system. Um, electricity grids are very complicated and um, now the general public is is interested in them in a way that they haven't been before. And I think we need to, I don't know, we, we need to be careful to not oversimplify to the point where you end up with the worst of both worlds. Well, here's here's the thing about New York State, which doesn't make rational sense at the moment. If they're taking off nuclear, a huge power, clean power generation device, and you're going to put in solar and wind, in which they don't really have a lot in New York State, I don't know what's left. You're going to get rid of gas. What's what's left? They have hydro because they have, uh, you know, out out west they have the big um, big dams, right? But there's there's nothing to fill in the gap. And I, I just have a hard time believing that politicians are going to last that long when the brownouts occur. And they're like we saw in Germany. I think the brownouts are sort of inevitable in this case. What are you going to do? I think people people are already moving out of New York State. More people and businesses will move out of New York State because of the lack of consistency in power. And, and plus, it's really expensive 
to live there and, and to use electricity there. So the combination doesn't make any sense. And I, I don't understand why the state leadership doesn't realize that yet. Oh, they're just waiting for others to shoot a drop. It's just what it looks like. Like we're winning right now. We, we can't look six months ahead or five years ahead. That's where they're at. It's just, it's just odd. Very odd. Could be wrong, but it just seems odd. If we want to be really forward thinking, then we need to start domesticating dinosaurs, bring them back. So then we can start this fossil fuel cycle over again. <laughs> and then we'll have oil and new petroleum ready when we need it in what? Is it 50,000 years? How much? How, how, 100 million. Well, you got you to start sometime. <laughs> a journey of a thousand miles starts with a single step. So. This is the kind of forward thinking that we, that we need in our governments. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is. It is. Yep. Yep. Um, so moving on, uh, some positive news. Uh, Scotland is going to lend their expertise in wind um, and renewable energy in general to help Vietnam, who's looking to to make an impact um, on their climate goals. Um, Rosemary, this seems like an obvious step that, you know, countries, especially Scotland, who have a wealth of experience, um, are starting to, you know, lend some uh, some consulting and, and help other countries stand up their own renewable energy programs. I mean, is this something we're probably going to see more more of in the future? I hope so. And I've been surprised that we haven't seen more of it in the past um, because, I mean, as much from like a, an equity point of view as anything else, I mean, the the rich world has, has made all the emissions, the historical emissions that have got us to the point where we need to decarbonize quickly, right? So I, I think that there is an ethical argument to be made that um, we have the responsibility to to help we need for developing countries to decarbonize much faster or sooner in their you know economic cycle than what the rich countries did and i think that yeah one it's the right thing to do to help them and two it helps us as well because you know like the uh, carbon emissions for the whole planet is what's important it doesn't really matter what country it came from or if any specific country got to zero and i think you know as um countries get you know closer and closer to zero uh, emissions, it gets harder and harder and more expensive, right? So in developing countries, we're seeing a lot more low-hanging fruit. You can um, get dramatic um, CO2 emissions reductions with less less outlay. Um, so I think that it makes sense from that point of view. And I think it also makes sense from a commercial point of view. If you're a country that has, you know, all these technologies that developing countries are going to need to develop, then, you know, that's a, that's a big emerging market for you. So I do see that it makes sense all around. And I've been surprised to not see more countries recognize this and aggressively pursue it. So I hope that we see more in the future. Yeah, and we've talked about this in in the past that, you know, just things like using charcoal for cooking are huge, you know, CO2 polluters, right? And so helping some of these, um, like, third world countries especially get, you know, better methods of cooking, better methods of just using energy in general um, seems like a big win, like you said, for the planet because that's a, that's a good point that it doesn't matter if America is zero emissions – it's the whole planet. Like you don't get you don't get to wear a gold star while the rest of the planet still <laughs> still suffers. Like you got to lend a hand. I mean, Alan, what's your, what's your take on the situation? I mean, this seems obvious, but how? But how, how much can a country do for another country? I mean, especially some one like Scotland that's still doing so much actively in their own home country. I mean, are they going to lend their B squad over to, to Vietnam, or like how do you see something like this actually working? Like the nuts and bolts. Oh, no. I, I think the UK in general is trying to be uh, a center for wind energy excellence. And, and, and I'm sure part of their strategic plan in terms of raising their economy up, particularly in Scotland, is to, to have exports. And exports of any kind are, are really good. And if you're exporting out engineering talent and, and technical ability to another country, those, those are premium products that, that pay a lot of money. Uh, so, you know, you, you go all of a sudden create this sort of vibrant uh, wind energy that uh, economy that's not just within your country. It's outside of your country. That's a very smart thing to do. And trying it on Vietnam as, as a sort of like a primer for doing more of them, I'm sure, is probably a good place to start. You know, 
figure it out, get a country figured out, figure out how you're going to approach them, then do the, do the relationship between the two governments and figure out how you're going to connect all this stuff together and then keep going, right? And I would say that Scotland is going to be heavily involved with that. I, I'm, I'm, Vietnam is in a really unique place right now because you actually see a lot of uh, interest in wind energy uh, just on the lightning side. I see a lot of research about lightning in Vietnam and wind turbines and trying to get things figured out from a lightning perspective. And I'm sure they're trying to figure it out from all the other perspectives they got to go do. But there is an interest in it and probably because it can be an economic leader if they have power, right? Power is the key to all all economies at the moment. And like the, the case, I give you the case of India, which I think it was this week where they, the head of India was talking at the COPD conference about not being net zero until 2070. That's a long time. That's 50 years. Everybody else is trying to do it 2040, 2050 kind of thing. And India is saying, no, we're not able to do that. That's a problem, right? Uh, and if countries like Scotland can move India faster, that's a benefit to everybody. Like you're saying, Dan, it's not just what, what America does or Australia does or Canada does. It's what the world does. China being one of those big polluters, India being another. The faster they get to a electricity-based economy that's not using coal, the, the faster we can really reduce emissions across the world. And how much does governmental support, I mean, come into this? Because obviously, like, the UK government has just pledged another 230 million pounds for offshore wind, which everyone's excited about. They like, you know, they're sort of a, a world leader. They want to keep that lead and, and keep that investment locally. Um, I mean, is it going to take a lot of investment from other countries into a country like Vietnam, or is Vietnam going to be able to, to fund a lot of this themselves? How is it going to work? Um, how do you see that, Alan? I think it's going to be funded like a lot of uh, entry-level countries are funded. They're going to be funded by banks and uh, global banks and global interests that fund these investments because sometimes they can't be done internally into the country. You've seen that in Central and South America for a long time, that there's just been massive amounts of investor money, I mean billions of dollars going into them to help start this process because – if they can get the economy started, it's kind of like it's like venture capital. It's what it is. If you can get the country started and the economy picks up, you can reap a huge amount, of, you know, 10x, 100x multiple on your investment if it works, right? So it's just like a venture capital, but they're playing with you know, not tens of millions or hundreds of millions. You're talking about billions and billions and billions. So, you know, do you want to take that risk on Vietnam or not? Evidently, Scotland thinks they can, but you know that Scotland's going to drag a lot of – once they make this connection work, you're going to see other investments start coming in. And Vietnam knows that too, right? This is, this is part political, part economics, and you got to merge the two together to be successful at it. So let's, uh, let's talk about Turkey um, for a minute. So they have surpassed um, – obviously, when you break your own records – you're surpassing your previous highs. Um, but Turkey, uh, their goal is to reach 25,000 megawatts by 2030. And they're, uh, you know, they currently have 3,615 turbines operating around the country. So Turkey's well on its way. Um, but uh, Rosemary, I mean, what, what, challenge do, what challenges do you think that they're going to face? Um, you know, are there any unique like topographical things or political things that are going to affect their ability to reach those goals long-term? Yeah, I, I don't know so much about the political or even the to topography in Turkey, but I do know that they've they've got a good wind resource. I assume they've got a good solar resource as well, and so I would not single out Turkey for having any particularly different challenges than other countries um, face when they're moving towards a, you know, a high, high proportion of variable renewables in their grid. So I hope that in combination with their aggressive plan to expand their wind energy, they've also got some plans for storage and um, interconnectors to other geographic areas to, you know, help help balance everything. Because I think we do see that around 20% is kind of the the sweet spot for being able to get variable renewables without doing much else. And then to go far beyond that, to be consistently getting, um, you know, 30, 40%, you know, like on average over a year, not just on, you know, one particular day. But to be consistently getting those levels, then you need to start doing other stuff as well. So I would see 
the wind plan sounds sounds excellent, and um, I don't think that that will have any particular problems rolling rolling out that amount of um, of new wind projects. But it'll be all the other things they need to do to make sure that the increased wind doesn't come with decreased grid reliability. So yeah, that's that's the way I see it. Alan, they're struggling with inflation over there in Turkey, right? They're Inflation yeah. rate for the year is at nineteen point eight nine percent, which right. is crazy. Um, yep. do, you, do you see that having any effect on this industry? I mean, is it going to be hard for them to invest, or other countries to invest, or um, yeah. I mean, what what role would that inflation play on their their economic development in general? It, it limits the amount of outside investment you're going to get into the country because in order to get gains out of the country, you have to get multiples better than the inflation rate. It's hard to get gains more than 20% yeah. in a particular yeah. year. So, yeah, for sure. so no matter how well a Turkish company will do, your investment is actually less at the end of the year. And so that limits. Less. <laughs> yeah, yeah so that's right. It's, so it's crazy. Right. It's crazy. And, and so it, what it forces uh, companies in Turkey to do is be super aggressive to get outside funds to come in. So instead of getting, gaining 20-30% in a particular year, you got to get 50-60. And those are just really hard things to do, and it really hurts them in the global marketplace. And this is what's happened in many other countries around the world, and it happened in the United States too. We're not immune to this. Rapid inflation is a huge limitation on economic growth, not only for its citizens because you can't keep up to, to buy food, but outside investments will start to shrink up because it's everything feels unstable. And in this global economy, I'm not sure that's a great thing for Turkey. So things have got to settle down before I think Turkey can rise up again. And, and hey, let's face it, Turkey has been over the millennia a very strong country. It just has uh, in all kinds of areas. And I think in wind, it's going to be also. Because uh, you can see, I, I watched LinkedIn, and I see uh, a lot of people in P Turkey doing repairs of wind turbines, and lightning's an issue there, so I see it all the time. So uh, Turkey will grow, but you got to put some parameters on what's happening with the, in the economy, and they just haven't quite done it. Political instability is part of that, but uh, you know, you just you just don't feel great for Turkey right now because you feel bad for the citizens that this is going on because historically, like I said, Turkey has been a great nation for a long time. And, and what what can a country do to cap inflation to slow it? I mean, what what is the remedy? Is is there one? There's a lot of, when you get to that kind of inflation, there's a lot of things that are wrong, right? So it's not fixing one thing and it goes away. You know, in, in the United States back in the 70s had inflation. We, I, we dealt about it in a different way than probably a lot of other countries did. Um, we started, yeah, I mean, we, we, we started to, this is sort of during the Reagan administration, so you're talking about 1980-ish, where a lot of it was just, I, honestly, at the time, I've lived it, I was around at the time, I think part of it was just pulling people out of this condition of everything's terrible. Uh, that was part of the message from the government. And it, weirdly enough, it seemed to work. Just changing the attitude of the average citizen, like things are going to be better. We just got to get to work. It'll be better. We just got to put in the time. That changing the dynamic on the psychology of the, of the citizens will do that. But if you're constantly at war, if you're constantly having chaos in the top of the political spectrum, it doesn't. It doesn't build confidence. And so that's when sort of the black market stuff happens. People start dealing in dollars, right? Uh, and, I, you know, I, it's just no quick solution to that kind of inflation, unfortunately. I just got an image of black market turbines. Like, they're, they're installed, yeah. but it's actually like paper mache. <laughs> like, you just push it over. Like, oh, no, we got we got taken. <laughs> oh. Like, you, you rub off GE, it was just painted in, like, watercolor on the side. God dang it. Had, we were had. Um, well, speaking of uh, construction, so in, in New Brunswick, Canada, there's a Trans Alta wind farm, and this is... Uh, there's three of them. It's called Kent Hills 1, Kent Hills 2, and there's a, a small five turbines at Kent Hills 3. But one wind turbine at the, the Kent Hills wind farm, it collapsed, and they found a number of cracks in the foundation, and they found more cracks in Kent Hills 1 and Kent Hills 2. And so right now they're stopped, and they're losing $3.7 million per month when these 50 turbines are offline. 
And it looks like uh, these foundation issues are going to be multi-million dollar fixes for each one, 1.5 to $2 million per foundation. Um, that seems like a ton of money because these concrete foundations are not enormous, right? They're a little concrete pad. But Rosemary, take us through a little bit of, of how difficult it would be to repair a foundation because I assume they're going to have to completely deconstruct the turbine, right? And lay a new foundation and then just essentially reinstall it. Is that how they would do this? I don't. I don't know. Actually, that wouldn't be my first assumption. My first assumption is that they're going to try to to do it without that. But I don't know what's specifically wrong with the the foundation. So I guess it's pretty pretty hard to say. Some some things, some potential problems you could never fix with the turbine there, and some you could. I know um, I did work on a, a project in. Um, I worked on a lot of projects in really cold areas, and in fact, I've, I've climbed in that area in New Brunswick. I have climbed turbines, and the picture in the article I looked at shows the beautiful autumn leaves, and uh, that's the time of year I was there. It's stunningly beautiful area, so it's you know it's sad to see a turbine lying on the ground there. But yeah, back to the foundations. One of the projects I was on, they. Um, because yeah, the, the temperatures get really low, obviously, in winter in these um, these locations. And if you pour the foundation at a time when the temperatures are low, then you can have big problems. And I did work on one project where they had to redo some foundations and it caused a massive inconvenient delay. Um, they did it before the – they realised the problem before the um, towers went up, but um, – so it was much easier then and I didn't have to, you know, think about whether they would be, um, you know, taking the tower down again. But I know in that case they were able to fix it without – they didn't have to, like, pull it all up and start again. They were able to fix it in some way and I, I definitely don't know the technical details <laughs> of it. But, uh, yeah, I mean, a foundation is expensive and it's a, a tricky – it's tricky when you're working in these environments where the temperatures change so much from um, season to season. You know, you get these weather windows, um, so you might design something to be installed in um, summer temperatures, and then if you have a delay, that means you're doing it a few months later combined with a freak weather occurrence. And I think these turbines are pretty old, so um, perhaps they weren't so knowledgeable about that sort of thing um, back then. I think that you can you can see problems happen that aren't immediately obvious, and yeah, I mean that's obviously what's happened here because you know it took a turbine falling over before they they knew what they had to do. Yeah, and of course it's November, so if this is a problem they have to fix now, it's, I don't know what the temperature cutoffs would be to <laughs> to repour foundations or what their remedies would be, but it's probably going to mean these are going to be shut off for quite a long time. I mean, six months. Mm -hmm. I mean, Canada's not a warm place. Alan, what what do you see happening here? I think they're going to have to do some sort of repair, and they're going to have to wait till it warms up. I mean, working in the snow up there would be really miserable. And and really, could you even set concrete at that those temperatures? You can, but it's not easy. I, I watched, weirdly enough, uh, I think it was on Facebook this past week in one of the wind turbine technicians group. They were they were showing a wind turbine that had a cracked foundation and they were just basically blasting out the bad parts with like high pressure water like a big water jet to, to remove the the broken pieces of concrete i thought oh that doesn't look so good to me just because what's supporting the turbine right now once you break out these big pieces of concrete and they put new concrete in like you're fixing a foundation of a house now, that doesn't Feel that right work? to me. That doesn't like does concrete bond, bond to itself. Like it's not like a weld where you're melting the you know the substrate aluminum. It's or yeah, steel right. They become one. Like I don't think concrete works that way. No, but it's full of rebar, right? So it's got reinforcement steel bar in it. So that that's what ties it together structurally, so it doesn't crumble. But still, I think once you remove the concrete from under the bases where the bolts are and then try to repack that with concrete, something has shifted. I would say something <laughs> has shifted. And I'm not sure how you go around. You have to retighten all the bolts, I would hope, because uh, I've seen pictures lately of, of turbines where all the bolts are loose on, on the bases. I'm like, wait a minute. All right. Come on, everybody. I mean, we got to kick the tires on all these turbines at least once a year. Like, Check the bolts because <laughs> they're right there on the ground. You don't have to climb. They're right there. Uh, those kind of things are weird that we're having issues of concrete and towers, foundations cracking. That just seems sort of 
like we should be over that right <laughs> at this point, but maybe not. It's odd. Yeah. Really well, odd. Rosemary, Rosemary, how many rolls of duct tape per turbine will it take to, <laughs> to, to solve this problem once and for all? I'm not going to pretend that I've never used duct tape to solve an <laughs> engineering problem. And there <laughs> may have been some products I worked on where duct tape, or not duct tape like you can buy at the hardware store, but, you know, like a Gorilla a tape is equivalent. pretty impressive. It's very it's sticky. <laughs> uh, that has actually featured in the in the design of, of several things that I've worked on. So I mean, it's like an engineering joke, but it's not really a joke because duct tape is a tape of all kinds is really a very very <laughs> useful product. Um, yeah, but I mean, I don't think it's so such a stretch that you could leave the the tower up because if you feather the blades so that there's no big loads, like the the load on a uh, um, the thrust load on a turbine that's operating is immensely larger than one that's just sitting there with the blades feathered out of the wind. So you are going to, uh, I don't, can't come up with a number off the top of my head, but you're going to reduce the vast majority of loads. So you really mm. are, um, you really are taking it to a different point. And obviously the foundation is designed for the, you know, the strongest thrust load plus a bit more. So um, I think that's not such a big deal. And then filling in the cracks as well. I mean, in general, con the, the concrete part of the foundation, it's um, concrete is good in compression and terrible in um, tension anyway. So, you know, the cracks will, the way it's designed, it's designed to be strong in compression. So I, I, I don't see that it's such a, a big, uh, it, it's not so out there, um, the, you know, materials mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> aspect of the material science aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, could they retrofit like a brace or something onto it. Like in my mind, I wondered two questions. Like, could they put like guy wires on it? I assume the answer is no, but then could they just sort of like flange out the base, like extend it, like weld on some, you know, like, like three gussets almost and make three like secondary concrete pads. Or is that probably just like way more, is that going to just like make it incredibly cost intensive anyway? Yeah, I think I think if they can get away with filling in the cracks, then they'll do that. Um, they could potentially make it a little bit bigger by digging around it. They could add guy wires. They could, you know, add a flange, but they'll they'll go with the least cost solution, which is probably not as um, in you know huger change to the design intent than than what you see there today. Because the other thing is if you dramatically change the design, so now you've got guy wires, well, then you've got, you know, like any number of other things that can go wrong because now you've got like a different natural frequency in your tower and, um, you know, like who you're just opening a huge can of worms. You would never prefer to, <laughs> to do it that way because you don't know what problem you're going to cause with your solution. Alan, who's on the hook to pay for this? Like, is someone who's getting sued by who in, the, in this scenario? I think the people who poured the the pad, or the, or even the engineer who figured out what the what it should be made out of and checked it. Somebody checked the concrete before it went in, right? And th that's something that happens as you check the consistency of concrete and how it's how it cures out those sort of things. And and so there's either an engineering. Uh oh, or an application. Uh oh, or a curing. Uh oh, or the load in the the loads that they predicted for that turbine are higher than what the foundation was designed for. So somewhere in this mix, somebody better be looking at, and I assume that they are because everybody's super conscientious around these things. Is that they're looking at what the loads are and making sure they did the calculations right, and that there's nothing that they missed, like super high wind speeds, super cold temperatures. Polar bears shoving on the turbine, something, something is off because usually there's so much margin around these things. You never get to these situations. You usually got factors of two or three in the design of structurally. So it's really odd that having any sort of uh, turbine base crack, it's un really unusual, really unusual. And then last up on the, uh, the docket today is um, some, some floating LIDARs have been deployed uh, offshore in the UK, and they're using uh, Fugro's Sea-Watch wind lighter buoys for the campaign. They're going to be out there for two years collecting data, and uh, this is for the Morgan and Mona project sites, uh, which used to be called the Yellow North and Yellow South. It's off the, uh, the Irish sea coast of northwest England and Wales. Um, Alan, it looks like this is sort of how they go about, and this is just an interesting topic in general, like 
how do people decide where to put an offshore wind farm, right? Like who decides this swatch of, of ocean is better than this swatch? And it seems like this LIDAR situation is how they do that. So, Alan, what's what's going to be the purpose of these LIDAR uh, buoys and what are they going to tell the engineers and prospectors? Well, they can actually measure wind speed at different altitudes or heights. So you can get a, a really good bit of information of like what the wind speeds are closer to the water, what the wind speeds are up 200, 300 feet up in the air, and uh, what the average wind speed is, what the maximum gusts are. So it provides all those little wind details that you wouldn't or- ordinarily have down to a very fine level. And if you're trying to maximize the amount of AEP coming out of a wind turbine farm, you would want to know that because then you could cite the turbines properly, like Rosemary was talking about in our in our last live stream, which is how do you cite all these wind turbines? Because the winds change direction and they change speeds with direction a little bit. So now when in our supercomputer world, you can actually take that information and design the ultimate wind turbine array. And Rosemary, you want to talk about that? Because your live stream is really fascinating this past week. <laughs> yeah, I feel like I've talked a, a lot about that. I uh, I kind of I chose a live stream topic to talk about um, basically how the aerodynamics of a wind farm is affected by, you know, one wind turbine is there and then the turbine behind it sees a little bit less wind because of the one in front. Um, and then as I I looked into it. It just became a bigger and bigger and more and more interesting topic. Um, but I mean, the reason I chose that as a live stream topic is because I think that people don't understand um, how much effort is spent on putting wind turbines in the, the right place. I mean, we, what did we save the figure for that wind farm in New Brunswick that's got to shut down? Um, how many? They were losing millions per... 3.7 million a month. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and then so those are very small turbines <laughs> compared to what we see for offshore. So you can imagine, I think I saw um, one study that um, was yeah optimizing the layout of turbines within a wind farm. They made a 0.4 or something percent improvement on um, annual energy production. And yeah, that's, that's millions, that's <laughs> millions every year that they're, um, that they're making from what sounds like quite a small improvement. So in, in some ways is um, offshore measurements are really similar to what they've been doing onshore. It's just harder and more important. And um, yeah, it's harder because you, it's harder to install a, a met mast in the ocean. Um, and they've also got to worry about um, waves and, and things like that that you don't have to worry about onshore and then it's more important because it's just like a much larger investment the you know the cost of an offshore wind farm is much more than an onshore one well back in the day you just slip aside and like a couple big tuna you know bribe him and you'd be good to go but this seems a lot more high tech than that it seems like we're moving in the right right direction technologically um with lidar but my my last question for either of you is why one year? Why two years? I mean, does it really require that that long? Those are also very rosy round numbers, right? Um, not to take your name in vain, but uh, <laughs> do we need one year? Do we need two years? I mean, how sure? Oh, yeah. How do they how do they come to this quantity of data that they know they need to to really be sure with their measurements? Well, it's it's how much they can afford um, to to take. You want you want more. The more, the better. And a couple of years. Uh, I mean, we all know that every summer is not like the summer before or the the next one. You know, wind speeds vary a, a lot from year to year. So if you only take measurements for one season, you you could be totally wrong on your um, your estimates for how much the, the wind farm is going to make and. You know, it really matters um, in terms of the, the financing if if you've got a business case or or you don't. And I know they do use like a lot of statistical methods because there's long term wind data from um, you know satellites and stuff, but it's just on not at the the right level that you need. So they will do some statistical adjustments to their one or two year period, but uh, it, it's just so critically important. Um, to their the profitability of their wind farm that the more data they can get the better without delaying the project so long that they you know are are losing money while they wait Mm. isn't that sort of the basis of floating wind this is a weird thing to think about but essentially if you're constantly measuring the wind and you're not you are truly floating right that you've got some anchors in the ground you could in theory ignoring the cable issue and the power coming out somewhere, you could move turbines or reorient them to increase power production based upon what you're seeing as generic trends in wind. 
what you can't do right now on like mountaintops like we do in my state, right? Uh, so the, the the floating wind aspect, this is really fascinating because you got to wonder if I can get, let's say if I got 2% more power if you had to move a turbine or a turbines, I think they would do it. I think there's a very good, strong likelihood if you got a 12 or 15 watt machine out there that you're going to move them. Uh, but you just don't, like we're learning right now, the winds are down in Europe this past year. What are you going to do? What are you going to try to maximize that? How are you going to maximize it? Are you going to try to do computer simulations and see well, how you could maximize it? And the beauty of floating is you can play around with it a little bit. You could adjust it. It's fascinating. Yeah, you can actually adjust even uh, installed onshore wind farms or fixed um, fixed bottom um, offshore. Uh, one of the, the actually the paper I mentioned where I said they got a 0.4 percent increase in AAP that that wasn't from moving turbine locations around. It was from just changing um, the angle of the the rotors. So it's called wake steering, right. and um, yeah. yeah. So instead of taking each turbine as an individual and uh, and maximizing its power, what they do is the front row turbines they purposely ro- uh, rotate them, yaw them a little bit so that their wake um, then goes out of the way of the one behind it. And in that way, you can get more power out of your wind farm. I think it's still pretty early and more of a, a research kind of question for now, um, because it's a bit complicated to implement. But I bet that we see that more in the future as, you know, computers get more powerful. And um, yeah, why wouldn't you take an extra 0.4% AEP if you can get it from just changing your, you know, your controls? Sure. There's, well, there's a company in Massachusetts that just announced a product that's supposed to do that. It's a software data acquisition system called when the company's called Windesco, and the product I think is called Swarm, which is doing just that. Like, let's look at the whole array we have and try to make some adjustments and see where we can maximize power. And again, it's looking at the turbulence between turbines. Uh, so I think we've reached the capability of doing it now we're now we're going to see investment in companies software hardware companies to implement it which is sort of the more difficult step but you're seeing we're just going for these one to two percent marginal improvements every year or two and it just makes the whole industry super efficient crazy good All right. Well, that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, share the show, and leave us a review. We'd really appreciate it. Obviously, you know how important reviews are uh, when you're making a trivial Amazon purchase. So leave us a review on iTunes or give us a comment on YouTube, wherever you watch or listen. Be sure to subscribe to Uptime Tech News, which you'll find in the show notes, as well as Rosemary's YouTube channel on everything renewable energy. We'll see you here next week on Uptime. Operating a profitable wind farm is all about mitigating costs, minimizing risks, and being efficient with maintenance, repairs, and upgrades. It's incredibly expensive to send a team of rope access technicians up tower to make even simple repairs. We also know how costly lightning damage can be, requiring inspection, repairs, and downtime for even minor lightning strikes. 